This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello, my name is Jean Connor. I am a nurse scientist and director of nursing research for cardiovascular and critical care at Boston Children's Hospital. I would like to welcome all of you to our nursing world shared practice. I am joined by Dr. Judy Fessy. Judy is a nurse scientist at Boston Children's Hospital in Medicine Patient Services and is the inaugural holder of the Leela Holden Carroll Chair in Nursing in the William F. Connell School of Nursing at Boston College. Dr. Vesey is a developmental pediatric nurse practitioner and a leading nurse researcher in the field of developmental pediatrics with a specialty in school health. And so with that, I welcome Dr. Judith Vesey. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. And, and so this topic today of youth bullying, I think is so important to our field and, and for all of us to just to begin to understand youth, youth bullying and how we could educate ourselves and actually intervene as nurses, I thought that maybe we could first just describe, please describe, what is youth bullying? Sure. Youth bullying has been around really since the medieval time. I mean, they're the first recorded records. But it really has only been in the last 20 years that it's taken on a much broader um, life in, in public consciousness. And one of the watershed events, unfortunately, happened in the United States, and that was the school massacre in um, Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. And after that, a lot more people, um, lay public, legislatures and whatnot, began paying attention to, to bullying um, that happens in the school and in the community, and then also what it means for families. So it's really only been in the last two decades that there's been a swell of research and information that has come out on it, um, and that really is internationally based. It should be noted that the first work in bullying really began in Scandinavia, um, and yeah. then has moved across, um, across the globe. I was... Um fascinated by your recent publication, really describing the state of the science of what we know and, and, and what we should do as nurses, this call mm -hmm. to action. And what caught my attention right away, I think in the first few sentences, was the, the percent of what we know of how often it happens. Mm -hmm. Was that surprising to you? You know it was, and I'll tell you why it was surprising. It was surprising on a couple of levels. First off, it's in the since I wrote that, the figures um, that have come out for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control um, push that up to 20 to 28 percent. Okay. That's a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And yet the health community has not really paid very much attention to addressing that. So that was one of the, uh, probably the biggest surprise for me was not only the numbers, but sort of the lack of response. Um, and I also was surprised that internationally, um, that the prevalence remains pretty much standard. I mean, there's difference by measurement techniques or whatnot, but whether you're a child in Japan, whether you're a child in Australia or England or France or um, in some of the African countries, those numbers hold. At 20%. 20 to, 20 to 30%. So globally. Globally. It's a global, global That's issue. Interesting. 
Now, now, how do we define it? What, what is okay. it exactly? I think that's an incredibly important question. So when you really look at bullying, and I also just want for an international audience include the word mobbing because that is mobbing, mobbing, okay. an equivalent word that's often used, particularly in the British Isles. Okay. But bullying really can be defined as those repetitive, persistent patterns of conduct by one or more children that deliberately inflict physical, verbal, or emotional abuse on another child and where a power differential is in place. Now what's really important about that definition is all three components need to be there. Um, first, it's got to be a repetitive pattern. There has to be intent on the part of the instigator. And thirdly, um, there has to be a power differential. Now, Jean, you and I are a little older, so when we think about power <laughs> differential in the schoolyard, we tended to think of the bully as the big kid, usually right. a boy, right. who would pummel other kids into submission. So more of a direct So more of direct bullying. bullying. Right. Now, the power differential has shifted dramatically. In what so way? much bullying now is done by um, is cyberbullying. So, cyber, so by yes. text messaging, sexting, setting up uh, fake websites, um, all there is a level of social toxicity that pervades mm -hmm. the media mm -hmm. that youth engages in on a day-to-day -day basis. So there are types, so, so there are a, a direct physical, um, yes, cyberbullying. And then there's their indirect, indirect type. And indirect is often, is more often um, occurs between girls. It's like the, in the, um, cafeteria or whatnot, the gossiping and the whispering, okay. or excluding one girl, um, or making fun of what she's wearing. So she knows she's on the outside, but doesn't know exactly why. So we have all three of those. What is interesting is, and at first this is going to sound a little counterintuitive, but youth who are directly bullied in some ways are a little lower at risk. And the reason is everybody sees it happening. So interventions can come to that child more quickly. It's also easier for a student to get out of that environment because if it's always happening on the school bus, you know, you find other options. Right. For those children who are cyberbullied, though, it is often 24-7. You can't escape. You can't escape it. Right. And it's very private particularly because parents are not as sophisticated in using technology as their children. So, so we have a definition. We mm -hmm. know there are different types, but who is involved in the bullying? So the bully is the instigator. Okay. And the victim or recipient is the target for the bully. Now, there's a group of kids who end up serving in both roles, and we call them victim bullies. These are um, children who may not know social boundaries very appropriately, who tend to get in other children's space, or they tend to get their peers into trouble. So other youths will turn around and bully them because their behavior is inappropriate. And they may be more impulsive or more hyperactive, there's one group of kids that's particularly at risk for that, and I use those words cautiously okay. because a lot of youths are at risk for bullying in a lot of ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be bullied. But children who are diagnosed with um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, the impulsive hyperactive type, 
are more likely to engage in behaviors that can really put them at risk for being bullied. Now the other two groups I want to briefly mention are um, bystanders and a new term that we've labeled upstanders. We know that bullies like an audience. Now, really? Yes, because okay. it enhances their perceived power when other folks are cheering them on for the behavior they're engaged in. Now, what you're going to say is, what's the audience for cyberbullying? Well, that That's was my next, next question. question. Yes. Cyberbullying is very easy. You hit the send button to all your friends. Okay. So if you take a picture of um, another child in a compromising position, say in the bathroom, or mm -hmm. all you have to do is send it out to send all, all. send off, mm -hmm. and then all of your friends also have seen the same picture and are making fun of the individual who may not even know what has happened. Mm -hmm. So, one of the um, one of our tasks in intervention is change bystanders to upstanders. Upstanders and upstanders then are those used who say this is not all right in one form or another. Um, they can immediately seek help from a teacher or a responsible adult or a school resource officer. Um, a parent, they can just tell the bully outright, just stop it. And if a lot of people are yelling stop it, mm -hmm. you know, the bully isn't getting the reinforcement they want. Mm -hmm. um, upstanders often work though in very different quiet ways. So a lot of times the cues will come from friends of the victim to their parent or to the victim's parent, either one. So adults need to be talking to each other. So again, and stay, stay engaged. Stay engaged. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. What are the things that we should be aware of that what bullying can cause in the individual? I think this is, um, this is critical. The, we tend to think about bullying as causing short-term psychological effects. We now know that it's much, much broader than that. Some of the short-term um, effects that it can cause are anxiety, depression. We know um, youths who are bullied will have greater absenteeism in school, which can lead to worsening academic performance. Um, youths will choose to not engage in activities that were really important to them before they will have in schools, we see greater attendance in the school nurse's health room because they're trying to miss classes, okay. they're trying to miss bullying. Avoid. Yeah, so all kinds of avoidance, mm -hmm. uh, loss of possessions. Interestingly, there's some new research just emerging that when they have looked at youths who have been bullied, they're also finding greater numbers of real physical illness. And there's been some very early work now in the immune system that shows long-term bullying can actually look at some depression in the immune system. And these kids are coming up with more um, otitis media, more sore throats, more upper respiratory infections, and so forth. Um, and would show up in our healthcare settings, absolutely. our offices, and so absolutely. working up the diagnosis, Gnosis. right? We need to think mm -hmm. of this. I was very fascinated by that linkage. These kids have elevated inflammation clear across. So that's huge if you think about what that means. Now my work began, and the way I got into this was working with children with chronic conditions. And there are children with chronic um, illnesses, developmental delays, and mental health problems because they're youths who tend to be more at risk for being targeted. 
So I got into the... Because of their illness. Because of their illness. It they makes tend them to be, different? Yep. I mean, yeah, okay. a lot of times they're smaller. Okay. They have more absenteeism. They may have health behave, uh, behaviors, um, condition management behaviors that sets them apart from other um, youths in the class. If they're diabetics and they're having to test their blood sugar, right. um, that's at risk. One of the there's been a big campaign in the United States called Just Say No to Drugs, referring to illegal substances. But if you're a child with a chronic condition and you've got to, say, take cystic fibrosis, for example, and you have to take a number of pills before every meal, then that sets you up for uh, greater risk. So that is another whole reason for that. So any behavior, and this is another really important concept, whatever sets a child apart from his peer group puts him or her at greater risk. And then lastly, if they're really different than whatever the norm of their community is. So if a child is in a school where the value is not to do well and most of the other students don't perceive that they're going to go on to college, that child's gonna be more likely to be targeted and vice versa. It's just whatever makes them different. So race, ethnicity, goal, drive, how you look, anything along the spectrum. At this time, we would like to engage all of you. When providing your response, please put your city and country first. In your current practice, do you routinely screen for youth bullying? Please describe. So I was thinking about this whole idea of teasing and what's you know, normal, what's not a, normal. That's a great And I just question. thought we should think about that when thinking about measurement, right? Yep. And, and that is a great question. And actually, the way I got into all this work was through teasing. Is because that right? I, and I began working in this area prior to the Columbine High School shootings and really began looking at teasing as a proxy measure for how children with chronic conditions do in schools. Mm -hmm. and when we started, there was very little literature, very little research on that. But what made it fascinating when we beganing, began parsing out the concept was there's good teasing and there's bad teasing. But if you think about it as two perpendicular lines with the recipient on one and the um, instigator on the other, I want you to think about um, your friends when um, either now or when you were a child. And our friends, would give us messages through teasing mm -hmm. that were helpful. Mm -hmm. So we know kids will give uh, messages to each other about what isn't, what isn't appropriate behavior. Adolescents will send sexual singles to each other, which is developmentally appropriate, even though their parents might want them not to do that. Um, and um, all that kind of stuff. So when the message is sent to be helpful and you receive it that way, that's positive teasing, positive even if teasing. it's got a little bit of an edge. Yes. On the flip side, if I intend to harm you, and I deliberately seek and repetitively go after you, and you receive that, it's clear that that's in that bullying. harmful way. In a harmful way, okay. that's clearly bullying. The other two quadrants for me are more interesting. What we really need to do is work on making all of our um, patients and become much, and all of our, our youth, just much more resilient in handling what life throws at them. 
Um, the upper quadrant, which is the last one, and this is where a lot of my work is focusing now, is these are used, are teasing them, but maybe in a kind of a nasty way. Yes. But the youth has perceived it as bullying. It's almost and like a lower threshold, A lower right? threshold. Yeah. And it starts this downward spiral then of what might have been maybe some nasty teasing to frank bullying. So our responsibility as healthcare providers is to really try to prevent any of that, but then intervene all the way along. But I think why this is such an important topic is we now know that youths who have been bullied carry that into adulthood. We know that they have um, lower thresholds um, and, and a worsening quality of life all throughout life than youths who have not been um, bullied over a sustained period of time. And do, are they more at risk for bullying? So they they've been bullied well be. and then do they repeat yeah. that behavior? They is can do something? one or two things. Okay. They can be victimized throughout their whole lives or if right. they get into a position where they have Change a role. role and yeah. power, then they can become bullies. Okay. I'm thinking about all of these different things and then as a scientist thinking, well, how would we measure it? In some ways, bullying's a bit like pain. pain. If I say yes. I'm in pain, you right. need to believe I'm in pain. Right. If you tell me you're bullied, I need to believe that. But I need to believe it within the definition of what is and what isn't bullying. If you're telling me you're bullied, um, and I can see by the environment that that's not really the case, my job is to help you reframe that. And what makes this difficult, though, is using a uniform definition. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is because peer relationships in, in young people are so fluid, where it really may be bullying one day, a week later, that um, so a very dynamic. child, very dynamic, okay. that child may be completely accepted into that group. What are the ways <laughs> that you've traditionally um, captured this information? Okay. So my original work, I really wanted to go right to intervention and look at how we could begin working with um, identi identifying and immediately interacting with um, mm -hmm. specifically children with chronic conditions who were being bullied. And I went out to the literature and when I was started there was no measurement tool. As the scientist. Whatsoever. So, and you know, um, so it was really clear we had to go back and start with measurement. So I was fortunate enough to receive funding from the National Institutes of um, Nursing to develop um, a measure which we call the CATS, the Child Adolescent Teasing Scale. Yes. And since we started that work, the concepts of teasing and bullying have become more fully explicated, so it is a very good crossover measure. But what we did first was we interviewed, um, conducted focus groups of middle school youths, and these are kids between the ages of 11 and 14 from around the country. So we did it geographically to catch different populations. So we went to um, inner cities, metropolitan areas, uh, rural areas. We went to the south, the northeast. So very inclusive. Very. We went yeah. Yeah, uh, New Mexico, Montana. We wanted to capture um, the Hispanic population. We wanted to capture American Indians, yep. African Americans, rich, poor, in between. So the we, whole story. The whole story. So took all that together um, and then came up with a list of items which kids were teased or bullied about. And then we worked very hard to simplify those items 
So they would be at like a fourth grade reading level. Okay. So unlike most tools. So they're like one word. So it's like I'm teased about my body, my stuff, my parents. I love the simplicity of it. That's what I really appreciated. And so it makes it really it pretty does. usable. Yeah. And then the other column was how much does it bother me? So we did that. We put all the items together, started with 70 items. Um, the used classical test theory um, and factor analysis for item reduction and came down with 32 items and that instrument has really stood the test of time and we've been really fortunate and it's been translated into um, Mandarin, Portuguese um, and Spanish with all validated versions and Wonderful. they're the ones that I know of. Um, but the problem with the instrument is, and as a scientist you know, you're always looking at what the next step is. Right. It's still not terribly flexible for clinical use. So Work our, to be done. Our next step was we've just completed a systematic analysis of all of the instruments that have been um, uh, published, um, where there's been psychometric studies published on them. Um, specifically to teasing and bullying. And we did that um, to really look if there's anything out there. So there isn't. So our, the work we're engaging in now is to develop a brief screen that can be used in primary care with every, in, the clinical in the clinical setting that um, nurses, physicians, and other healthcare providers wrap our arms around this problem and own it um, to pick up kids early on. Now, the model that I've used for this work is the public health prevention model. We have primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention. And for those in the audience who may not be um, completely familiar with this, I'll give you a, just a brief introduction. But primary prevention are those activities that one engages in to keep the problem from ever occurring. Secondary prevention really focuses on how early can we detect the problem although the symptomatology may not be in, you know, uh, terribly evident. And tertiary prevention is when the problem is um, clearly symptomatic and there's a lot of issues. The example I always give is cardiac disease, and you'll just have to bear with me because I'm not <laughs> an expert on this. But in primary prevention, what we really work on is helping kids develop exercise patterns, healthy eating, um, <clears throat> uh, healthy weight, uh, learning to manage stress early on. Secondary prevention though, and we're doing this more and more, is we're screening for cholesterol on kids, for kids who have yes. um, lipid profiles that are not what we would anticipate, and then begin intervening at that level. We are, you know, hypertension, again, if they have, yeah. um, begin actually treating that earlier on, because we know that these are risk factors for cardiac disease. If we don't handle that now, then adulthood, what we'll see is those individuals that might have myocardial infarctions or other major heart disease. Very real, right. And after that incident, you can get better, but in some ways it's always palliative. You will never get a heart that looks as good as the heart of an right. adolescent. Right. So I want you to switch that in your head to bullying. So in primary prevention for bullying, we have an enormous amount of energy being put in, in, in most certainly in the US and elsewhere in the world, in programs in school to stop bullying. And they may improve the climate, they may um, make um, 
use more empathetic. However, the long-term studies of those have really shown that they're not terribly effective. We know from any type of health education, you've got to repeatedly give the message. But with, with any um, child and behavior, it's what they see, it's not just what they hear. So it's, it's behavior. So if they go home and everybody's bullying in their families, then right. you know that's not the behavior that they see that's gonna, that they can hold up as how they want to be. But the other thing is, schools are, um, usually are only responsible for the behavior of their students in school and maybe getting to and from school. Right. With cyberbullying, which is 24-7, a lot of the bullying takes place off the school ground, outside of the school day, and schools may have very little authority to address that. Right, okay. So, so, so that's why though, I think it comes back to healthcare providers. Right, we need to I mean really, a real opportunity. It's a huge opportunity um, for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, we seek to deliver patient and family-centered care. Yes, that's, I, I really, that rung so, so strong in this story, I thought. So that's the beginning. And then the other part of me, um, because I, I do have a degree in business, is we don't want to be spending our health care resources badly. So if the real problem is bullying, how many dollars do we want to spend on a physiologic workup or assessment for a condition that really isn't the root cause. Now some of that has, you do that for ruling out other conditions and whatnot, but if you never ask about bullying, you might have missed, right. Um, right. missed the, the sole cause the of what the physical. Exactly. Right. So you have to get to the antecedents. At this time, we would like to engage all of you. When providing your response, please put your city and country first. Do you have any policy guiding measures in prevention at the level of your country, your practice organization, or in your clinical role? If yes, please describe. I love your framework of the different levels of prevention. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what is it that we should do? We think this is a world shared practice. Right. Well, I think what could we do? I don't think we want to wait until the perfect screening tool comes out. We'll, hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> but I think when every time we interface with a, a, a child and their family, and particularly in the, um, say from age eight, nine, up through 16, that tends to be the highest risk group, we just need to ask them. You know, so it should um, be part of that assessment, intake you know? assessment. So, and also remember, if you got 20 to 28 percent of kids who are bullied, somebody's got to be bullying them. And where parents who feel really left out of the processes, they may fear that their child is a bully, but they can't ask the school because the school may have policies around suspension and whatnot okay. that they wouldn't want to set up a you know, a concern that their child is the bully for fear of the ramifications for them. Healthcare, we can do that. 
Because in healthcare, what we can do is if a parent is worried that their child is a bully or being bullied, we can get them the resources they need. We can refer them to mental health. We can right. give them some online strategies. So we're the strategies. safety net. We're the safety net. What would be the question you would ask? Right, How would you ask it? I would ask parents and youth separately because a lot of times a child will not say in front of their parents that are bullied. So do separate. So I would, I would do separate. Okay. One question you could ask in general is, um, We've been hearing a lot about bullying. Is there any bullying in your school? Mm -hmm. Are you involved? What's your school do about it? Mm -hmm. And engage at every visit. So at every visit. Uh, so this and, is important. And the other thing we do Prevention. is we often forget to ask the second question. So you're in. Okay. The, you're working in the emergency department, and in walks this um, young woman with a questionable fracture of her arm, and you say, "Oh, how that happened? Oh, I was running. Oh, well, you should watch where you're running." Wrong answer. Why were you running? That's the next question. Okay. That's why I talk about asking the second question, because was she running from someone? Was she being scared? Had she been egged on to doing something that she knew she couldn't, okay. she shouldn't be doing okay. as a threat? Is the second question still to the child, or when do you bring the parent in? Because we've talked about partnership with families. As we know in clinical care, every family is different. So with some families, it's probably okay for both to be there. Um, but at the end of the second question, and, it's, and to you know, let the child know that I'm really here to help you. Is it okay if we talk with your mom and dad about this as well? And, and see where that so goes. So a safe place. A safe place. Now, you, you always have to keep in the back of your mind some children fear the response of their parents because if they come, if they happen to be living in a family where the one parent is particularly aggressive, they may be really afraid that that parent is going to make it worse for them by approaching the bully's parents and really fueling um, the situation. So all of that really needs to be done on an individual basis and it's why it's so important that we really know our families. So take your cues from the child. If not that visit, um, when you bring them back, follow up. And if it's an older child, give them your telephone number. Right. Or suggest to them, do you feel comfortable seeing your school counselor? Some will say yes, they hadn't thought about it. Or your school nurse. School nurses, um, the school nurse health room has been um, rated by you as one of the safest places in the school building. Good to know. So, so again, nursing, so right? Nursing. So, um, but not, you know, so with all of those, it's who the child feels most comfortable with. At this time, we would like to engage all of you. When providing your response, please put your city and country first. Do you have a referral guideline for a youth that you have identified as being bullied? If yes, please describe. And, and then as we think as nurses, so our nursing organizations, our, our, our leadership there, what, what should you we know, be thinking? Is, what should we be looking for? This is our huge. kind of resources, I'm, support, voice? I'm so glad you brought that up. This is absolutely huge. We actually looked at this, and of all the nursing organizations, we only found three with any type of position or white paper on bullying. And as you would expect, were you surprised? I was shocked. You were because it wasn't even all the pediatric nursing organizations didn't have mm -hmm. papers. So, for example, um, 
any organization where we know they, their membership is caring for youth at risk should be informing their members on some level. So for example, the uh, organizations where they have a large um, number of cosmetic and plastic surgery nurses, they really need to know about this issue because yes. a lot of their clientele. But I would go back to children who um, have oncologic conditions or cardiac conditions. We know that they're high risk groups. Right. Oncology is very interesting. Social marketing has done such a wonderful job in making um, children undergoing active chemotherapy with hair loss want to feel accepted. But the problem is after they're off of therapy and they go back to school and they may have some low level learning disabilities yes. or other kinds of things, that's when they're targeted. Yes. So <laughs> I think we all just need to look at where we are in the nursing world mm -hmm. and think how can we begin making levels, a difference at very right? different so levels. On the front lines and then in our other leadership exactly. scope opportunities to exactly. really understand not only what it is, mm -hmm. but what our role is in preventing. Ab absolutely, so whatever, and I go back to my roots um, specifically in caring for kids with chronic conditions and, and just what it, on whatever avenue we interface with these children and their families is to take this as an, anim as an avenue to also um, just see how they're doing, um, their mental and emotional health around school. So I'd, I'd like to just see if there are any last thoughts and, and then thank you for this, this wonderful time of just really telling us something that is so important to all of us on so many levels. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, you don't often get this opportunity and, and just to let everyone know that you can do the smallest thing to make a real change in a child's life. And just to take home some little piece of this message and wherever you engage with children and families, um, to think about including some of these sorts of messages and really help with the prevention of this horrible, horrible, pernicious condition. So again, Dr. Vesey, thank you for oh, your Oh, thank you expertise. so much. It's been delightful. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.